Thank you, Celeste, for that beautiful musical rendition, one of my favorite hymns. Do you remember the first time you were lost? I can remember going shopping with my mother to a department store as a youngster and getting lost. It was a terrifying experience for a little boy. One moment I was with mom and the next moment she was not there. It wasn't her fault, it was mine. I lingered looking at things along the way, along the aisles, and when I looked up she wasn't there. And I sensed a panic coming over me. And so I hurried up and down various aisles looking for mom, and she was nowhere to be found. And then presently I looked up. This was the, the day before escalators, and mom was coming down the stairs. I tell you, I remember the relief and joy of that Reunion, for the lost had been found. Perhaps you've had similar experiences in your life. Perhaps you've been lost as an adult. I have. I remember when I was the youth pastor for the Arlington Church down on Magnolia Avenue. We took uh, our young people camping down to the at least then, the little fishing village of San Felipe in Baja, California. And we took boats with us, some ski boats. We had a marvelous time. We went skiing, we went swimming, we sunbathed, we went shelling. And this shelling story this morning, Janet, reminded me of that because we, we were digging for shells as well. We had a glorious time in San Felipe. And then we decided to take our young people out to the point the point is way out, a number of miles away from our campsite. So we ferried them across to the point. It took us a couple trips to get all our young people to the point, And there they relaxed in the sunshine. They went swimming, sunbathed, did some shelling, just had a glorious time. And then it was getting late in the day. And I thought, you know, it's going to be in just a little bit dark. So we better bring our kids back from the point. So we went to the point, loaded up our boats, and made our way back to the campground. We did a couple of those ferry trips back and forth. And finally, we came to our last uh, trip that we needed to take to pick up the last group of young people at the point. And the sun was setting in the west, and it was starting to get dark. And so I told uh, Mrs. Mayling, I gave her a Coleman lantern, and I said, Now, Mrs. Mayling, when you hear the sound of the boats coming across on the Sea of Cortez, you swing this lantern so we can see it. Because when it gets dark, it gets dark in Baja, at least at that time of the year that we were there. And all you can see in the distance is the silhouette of those hills, if you remember. And it's dark and you don't know where to turn into, where your campground is. So I said, Sister Mayling, you, you swing that lantern so we can see it and we'll know where to turn in with our boats. So off we went to the point. And we picked up our kids, loaded them up, and uh, by now it's really dark. And all I could see was the silhouette of those hills and nothing else. Had no clue where to turn into. 
And we were coming across the Sea of Cortez in our boats. And we kept coming. And we kept coming. And we kept coming. And no light. And in my mind I was thinking, Sister Maylene, where are you? Where's that lantern? Where's the light? Where do we turn into? And we kept going and going what seemed like an eternity. I'm sure it wasn't, but it seemed like an eternity. And finally, in the distance, I saw a very small light. And then it began to swing back and forth. And that campground that we had lost for a little while came into view. And we pulled in safely and uh, had a glorious reunion on that occasion as well as we sat around the fire, the campfire. You know how that's like when you're camping, how wonderfully warm. A lot of the kids were cold because we brought that last group across the Sea of Cortez. We've all lived through similar traumatic experiences at some point in our life. And there are lessons to be learned from uh, these experiences. And so with this as a background, uh, sort of a foundation, I invite you to take your Bibles today and meet me in the Gospel of Luke, the third Gospel of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and chapter 15, if you would. Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, and we'll begin reading with verse 1. In this chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus describes three kinds of lostness. Gospel of Matthew, or rather Luke 15, beginning with verse 1. Then all the tax collectors, Luke writes, these were also called publicans. These were Jews who worked for the Roman government to collect taxes. And they would embellish themselves by charging a little extra and putting that into their pockets. Now, as I said, these were Jews who worked for the Roman government and thus they were hated by their fellow Jews. They considered them traitors. So here are these tax collectors, these publicans and sinners. Dr. Luke writes here, sinners. These were the outcasts of society. These were the uneducated, the poor the prostitutes, the sinners, the vile individuals, at least they were considered that by the Pharisees and by the scribes. And notice that the Bible says that they drew near to him to hear him. And that raises the question, why were they drawn to Jesus, these outcasts of society, these uneducated, these poor, these prostitutes, these vile individuals. Why were they drawn to Jesus? And the answer is, is because he received them with gladness, with joy. He accepted them just as they were. And they loved to hear his words of life. And so they came to him. Indeed they did to hear him. And then the Pharisees, these were the uh, religious leaders of the day. These Pharisees were meticulous in law keeping and all the other rules and regulations that had been added to the law of God. And they believed that by being so meticulous in their law keeping, 
that this gave them righteousness, right standing with God. And they were proud of their righteousness. And thus they looked down at the other sinners as having no hope of salvation. And so these Pharisees and scribes, which, which were the teachers of the law, they complained, they, 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 they murmured. And they said, this man, referring to Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. They couldn't believe that this young Galilean rabbi would associate himself with these outcasts of society. The Pharisees were content, happy with their righteousness. The others knew that they had no righteousness of their own to offer. You see, Jesus hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Aren't you glad? Jesus hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Whereas the Pharisees and the teachers of the law cherished sin, but hated the sinner. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And aren't you glad for that today? That's why we're here today. All right. Verse 3. So Jesus spoke this parable to them. A parable is a story with a biblical or a spiritual application, a spiritual truth. But it's encased in a story. And Luke writes, So he, Jesus, spoke this parable to them, saying... Which man of you, undoubtedly in this crowd that was, that was there that day with Jesus, undoubtedly there must have been some shepherds there, keepers of flocks and herds, and perhaps there were even some of the owners of the flocks and herds who weren't shepherds, but they owned these animals who were there in the hearing of Jesus, and they could identify with what Jesus was going to say. What man of you, Jesus said, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Until he finds it. A pastor once asked a shepherd the question, how does a sheep get lost? And the shepherd responded by saying, a sheep gets lost because it nibbles its way into lostness. In other words, it begins to eat here and over there and goes over here and over there and before you know it, it's, it's out there and it's lost. And it knows that it's lost, but it doesn't know how to get its way back to the fold. And unless the shepherd goes and seeks and finds that sheep, that sheep will die in its lostness. Notice when this, in this story, the shepherd finds it, he doesn't reprimand that sheep, he doesn't scold that sheep, he doesn't get after that sheep, he doesn't make the sheep walk behind him or alongside of him or up in front of him. Notice that the Bible says that the shepherd takes this sheep, picks it up, puts it across his shoulders. Now that's very touching, that's very moving because... That sheep can now feel the warmth of the shepherd. It's been accepted by that shepherd. And that shepherd brings it home. And notice verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, quoting the contemporary English version, let's celebrate. Or the King James puts it, rejoice with me. I like the other. Let's celebrate. Let's have a a celebration. Because the lost has been found. And I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. Then Jesus told them another story. And I thought it's interesting. Notice that this one begins with a woman. Perhaps there were women in the crowd. Undoubtedly, they were women in the crowd. So they could identify with the second story. Jesus continues and says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, this was a dowry that this woman had, and perhaps was saving it for her daughter when she would get married to give her this dowry. It meant a lot. This woman had ten silver coins, And if she loses one, Jesus said, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. You see, at this point in time, um, the houses of the poor usually consisted of but one bedroom, often windowless and dark, and a barren, hard, crusted dirt floor. So if you lost something, you had to light a lamp. And search for it. And that's what this woman does. She, she gets the lamp, gets her broom, and begins to sweep every nook and cranny trying to find that lost coin. I want you to bear in mind that this coin is lost in the house. Not in the wilderness. In the house. One can be lost at home. One can be lost in church. It was lost in the house. And this woman took a broom and she swept every nook and cranny until she found it. And then she calls her friends and neighbors together rejoicing. Let's celebrate, she says, or rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I lost. Jesus then says in verse 10, Likewise, I say to you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, that paints a picture in my mind that when one commits his life to Jesus Christ, there's a celebration in heaven, folks. There is a celebration. And aren't you glad? Indeed. Aren't you glad? And then he comes to the final, to the third story which uh, is the story or the parable of the lost son, or it's known also as the prodigal son, indeed. And so I want us to go through this as quickly as we can. Verse 11, Then he, Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. This was considered very unethical in that time and in that place. For wealth, the family wealth or inheritance was not distributed to the sons, 
unless the father was incapacitated, no longer able to function properly, or the father had died. For a son to come to his father and ask for his inheritance before that was almost an insult. You see, this young son wanted to live his own way. No rules, no regulations, no guidelines that he wanted to live by in that home. He just wanted his portion. And he wanted to get out of that house and go far, far away. And please notice that when he made that request of his father, that the Bible says, so he, that is the father, divided to them his livelihood. Now there was a stipulation from back in Deuteronomy that the oldest son, being the firstborn, would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and the other son would get one-third. Notice that the father did not reprimand the younger son who asked for his inheritance. He didn't, he didn't give him a bad time. He didn't even try to persuade him not to take his inheritance and leave the house. It says he divided that inheritance with both his sons, two-thirds to the elders and one-third to the younger. And then we pick up the story. In verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. Now, I circled the word all in my Bible. It t tells me that he had no intention of coming back. If he had any intention of coming back, he would have left some things in his room. But the Bible says he gathered all together and then journeyed to a far country. There wasted his possessions with prodigal living, wild living, riotous living. That's what the Bible says. And as long as he had money, he had friends. Things were going well, so he thought. But he was wasting his inheritance, wasting his money in wild living. And then the Bible says, and when he had spent all, verse 14, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. As long as he had money, he had friends. When his money ran out, his friends scattered like cockroaches when you turn the light on. They vanished and he was left all alone with nothing. With nothing. Verse 15. Then he went and joined himself with a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, to feed the pigs, to feed the hogs. This was very degrading for a Jew to even to be near swine because it was considered an unclean um, animal, unclean food. And to touch it, even to touch it, would be ceremoniously unclean. But this was all that seemingly was available to him. And so he, he took on this work. Verse 16. And he gladly would have filled his stomach with the pods, either these carrot pods, these grow on tall trees in Palestine along the Mediterranean coast, carob pod trees, 
um, the poor people, uh, the very poor of the poor, uh, will open up these pods and eat the seeds and then feed the outer shell, so it, as it were, or pods, um, to the animals, to the swine. And this man was extremely hungry. And it says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. And then we come to verse 17. But when he came to himself. Other translations read, when he came to his senses. When he realized his situation, his condition, I believe it was when he thought of home. You know, there's no place like home. There is no place like home. When he thought of home. When he thought of his father and his father's love and kindness and how he was always treated in that home with respect, with love, with admiration, with consideration. When he thought of all that, the Bible says, when when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. He said, I will arise, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And against you. You see, when we sin, all sin is ultimately against God. And then it is to the other person that we have offended or sinned against. But all sins is against God in his primary application here. So he rehearsed this little speech that he was going to say when he returned home. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. Just make me as, as one of your servants. I'm not worthy to be called one of your sons. Just make me a servant. And I'll be satisfied. Verse 20 is very significant. I have it underlined in my Bible. You might want to do likewise. And he arose. First he thought about it. Then in verse 20, he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, a long distance away, his father saw him. Now, I don't know about you, but I love to ask questions when I read scripture. It says he was a long ways off, and his father saw him. Undoubtedly, this father must have daily gone to the gate at the end of his property and looked down that long road that went into the far country. I think this father did it every day. And what a disappointment must have come to his heart when he looked down for his lost son, hoping that he'd be returning and he wasn't visible. It must have brought a lot of disappointment to his heart. I remember as a young boy growing up that mother said one day to me, Tomorrow I'm taking you to town and I'm going to buy you a new pair of shoes. Now, to some of you folk, that may not sound like much, but to a young boy back when I lived, wow, that was an experience. I'm going to buy you some brand new shoes. 
So when tomorrow came, the next day came, she said, I want you to dress up in, in your finer clothes. So I spiffied up, put on some better clothes than I played with every day. And she spiffied up. And then we came outside the house to the porch and we waited for the postman to come. Because we knew that that postman would bring us something very important. So presently that postman was coming down the street, going to house to house, and finally he came to ours and he came up the walkway to the porch. And when he came close to the porch, he said, Mrs. Schmidt, your check didn't come today. I'm so sorry. And he went on his way. And to a young boy, what a disappointment. What a disappointment. The check didn't come that day. Now this in no way compares to this father who would go on a daily basis looking for his lost son. But you can imagine the disappointment in his heart when his son was not visible. Ah, but on this day, it says that while he was still a great way off, his father saw him. And I asked the question, how did he recognize his son? He's a long ways off. He's not the same boy that left with sandals on his feet, with nice clothes and a spring in his step. He doesn't look that way coming back. Undoubtedly, he's barefoot. His clothes are rags. They smell of swine, mud. His hair is long, matted, dirty, filthy, smelly. How did his father recognize him a great way off? Uh, to me, there's only one way. Only one way. His walk. In physical therapy, we call it his gait. His walk. His walk was unmistakable. No matter the rags, no matter the long hair and all the rest, the walk. That was his boy, his son. And he was coming home. He was coming home. The time away made no difference. The smell of swine on his clothes made no difference. His filthy rags made no difference. His son was coming home. And that's what all that mattered. His son was coming home. Now some of us have sons and daughters who we wish would come home. We have burdens on our hearts. We pray for our children. We pray for our grandchildren. That they will be drawn to God's heart. That the Holy Spirit will work and woo their hearts to bring them back again. Well, this father was elated that his son was coming. And notice, his father saw him. And the Bible says in verse 20, he had compassion. That's a very special word in scripture, beloved. It doesn't mean he felt sorry for him. He didn't have pity for him. Compassion here in the Gospels talks to that, that inner that comes deep from the souls. Based in love. Reaching out. 
That's compassion. Compassion is wanting to do something about it. He had great compassion for his son. Everything was forgotten. No grudges here. No bitter memories. The fact that his son was coming was important. He had compassion. And the Bible says something very strange. What's the next word? And he ran. You know, this is the only place in Holy Scripture that I know of that portrays God running. The Father here represents God. And God is running. Have you ever seen your mother or your father run when they were older? I knew maybe when you were young they were running with you, but when they got older, ever see your mom and dad run? You know? Well, one year Moffy and I and the family took a trip to Yellowstone National Park. And we invited mother to come along with us. She had never seen some of this country. And we said, come with us. We're going to go to see Mount Rushmore. We're going to see Yellowstone National Park and a lot of other things. Well, we went to Mount Rushmore and she was just amazed to see the presidents carved in stone as we were. And then we went on to Yellowstone National Park and it is glorious. If you've never been there, you've missed a treat. And we just enjoyed the sights of Yellowstone National Park. Well, there's a river off to one side and the geysers empty their hot water into that river. And so we decided it was a hot day and we thought, let's, let's take off our shoes and our socks and, and let's just uh, go swimming. And so we did that. We went into the water and mother came along with us, but she just, she didn't get in the water. She just stood alongside. And then she said, um, I'm going to go to the car. And just rest a while. You, you, you kids just enjoy yourselves. I, I'm going to go to the car and rest a while. So I said, okay, Mom. And then I saw her go up this path that went up this little knoll, this little hill, where the car was parked on the other side. So I saw my mom going up this path uh, over the knoll and then disappear. Well, it wasn't long till I saw my mother coming down that path off that knoll, running. And I had never seen my mother run in my life. And she was running for all she was worth. And I thought, what in the world's going on here? Well, it didn't take long to find out. There lumbering behind mother was this brown bear. She thought this bear was after her. He wasn't. He was after the trash cans that were off to the side. But mother thought the bear was after her and she was running for dear life, let me tell you. Well, in this Bible passage, it says he ran. He ran. He put aside his, his dignity. You know, it was undignified for the patriarch of the family uh, to run. It didn't matter on this occasion. That father ran. And notice the language of love here in this passage. You know, the language of love is always physical. Did you know that? The language of love is always physical. The Bible says he ran. Then what did he do? He embraced his son and, hello, and he kissed him. He ran, he embraced him, and he kissed him. And I don't think he kissed him once. I think he kissed him many times. You know, in some cultures, 
in some countries, you know, Mafi was born and raised in South America, and, and they have some wonderful customs, and they have them in other parts of the world as well. You know, sometimes I've met some of her relatives, her, some of her kinfolk, that I've never seen before in my life. They're total strangers to me. But when Mafi says, this is my husband Paul, these individuals give me a hug, and they kiss me on both sides of the cheek. I could get used to that. That's a wonderful custom. You know, we're a little colder here, unfortunately, in the United States. You know, we reach out with that hand. And having been a pastor for years, greeting hundreds, probably thousands of hands in my day, some hands, you know, they're just limp. Some, some feel like spaghetti, you know, just a limp thing. Another like a dead fish. And then you get some that, oh, some men squeeze my hand like they must have been milking cows for 20 years. They about break your fingers, you know. We give that handshake. Oh, I sure like when they give you that little hug and they kiss you on both sides of the cheek. Boy, that's special. That's, don't you feel better when somebody gives you a Christian hug than that old handshake? Well, this father embraced his son, kissed his son. Oh, indeed, indeed. All that mattered was his son was returning. The time away made no difference. Oh, no. His son was home. I have two more questions that I want to conclude. The clock always beats me for some reason. I hope you're patient with me. Give me a few more minutes. How does God treat us when we come back? When we return, when we come home to God... How does God treat us when we come home? Well, the biblical passage told us that God runs. God embraces. God kisses us. And here, notice the son wanted to give his little speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. He didn't even get that far. He didn't even get that far. No, he didn't. The word quickly shouldn't be overlooked in this passage. The father ran. Notice he didn't scold his son. He didn't humiliate his son. Didn't give him a bad time. How could you leave us? How could you bring such disgrace to our name and to our family? He didn't go through all of that. He embraced his son and he kissed his son. And he welcomed his son. And notice verse 22. He hardly says a few words and the father says, Bring out the best robe. Not just any robe. He says, the best robe. You see, when you come home to Jesus, you come as you are. It might be that you have a robe of alienation, a robe of rebellion, a robe of self-righteous. It doesn't matter. You come. Just the way you are. I like this little paragraph from Steps to Christ, page 64. He, Christ, offers to take our sins and give us his righteousness. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for his sake you are counted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. That's an amazing statement. When you come to God, he wraps the robe of his son, Christ Jesus, righteousness around you. 
And when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees his Son and his righteousness. That's how God treats us when we, when we come home. What an exchange. My filthy rags for Christ's righteousness. And then in verse 22 it goes on to say, and he says, And bring the ring. Now this was not just any ring. Oh no, this was the signet ring. It signified and indicated a person of authority as a son with all the rights and privileges. He was being accepted as a son, not a servant. And thirdly, and sandals. And sandals for his feet. You see, sandals were the mark of a son, of a family member. Only slaves and the very poor went barefooted. And then he said, if that wasn't enough, he says, and bring that fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Let's celebrate. That's what it says. Let's celebrate. Why? Verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate or make merry as the King James says. There is celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents. Over one individual who comes and commits his life to Jesus Christ. And I ask you the question this morning, have you drifted away from God? Have you wandered from God? I ask the question, isn't it time to come home? Isn't it time to come home? I'm going to make an appeal this morning. You can't teach and preach this kind of message without making an appeal. There may be someone today who has felt the Spirit of God speaking to his or her heart today, saying, it's time. It's time to come home. Perhaps you've made promises to God, and those promises were broken like ropes of sand. Perhaps you've come before and committed your life to Jesus Christ, but then through the passage of time you've wandered away, you've drifted away, you've nibbled your way, as it were, with some distance between you and God. And I'm going to make an appeal. Is there someone here who would like to commit their life to Jesus Christ anew? Maybe for the first time. Perhaps you want to make that renewal in that covenant between you and God. I'm going to ask you to come forward and we'll have a special prayer for you and then we'll let you go. Is there someone here today that wants to come? Just as you are. Don't let the devil try to uh, talk you out of coming or tell him to you, you've got to be better before you can come. You've got to clean up your act before you come. Don't wait until you're better because if you're waiting until you're better, you'll never come. And when Satan points to your filthy garments, you have no right to come. You repeat the promise of Jesus. He or she that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Tell the enemy that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all your sins. You come as you are and let God do the changing.
Okay. Is there someone else that wants to come down to the front today? This is between you and God. You're not coming because I'm asking you to come. I'm just merely a channel. I'm just merely an instrument. But if God has been knocking at your heart's door, has been pulling at the heartstrings of your heart, won't you come today and say, Yes, indeed, I want to give my life to Jesus. Look what Jesus has done for you. Come. You come and commit your life to him anew. Someone else. I don't want to unduly extend the call. But surely there are people sitting here today who feel that they need to make a recommitment to Jesus Christ. Who need to give their lives to him. I'm going to ask the elders of the church to come up front. Marvin, Gary, and other elders who are here. Won't you come and greet these folk as I continue the call this morning? Give these people a a Christian hug, won't you? If there are other elders here, won't you come forward and greet these that are here? Bob Cooley, you're back there. Come on to the front. And uh, Luther, Ekblad, come down and greet these folk here. Someone else. Surely maybe you can go to the organ and real softly play just as I am or one of those. I'm just going to hold the call a little bit. Open up the doors as it were of the church and invite these dear ones to come forward. All right. Anyone else feels the call of Christ to come down today? Won't you come? Won't you come? Is there another? I don't want you to go home and and then say to yourself, I should have got up out of my seat. Notice this son in the story. It said, and he arose. In other words, he got up and he made movement toward home. If you're sitting in that pew... It's time to get up and make your way down the aisle and come to the front for Jesus and for what he's done for you. Anyone else? Anyone else coming today? God bless you for coming. God bless you. Yes, indeed. We come just as we are with our mistakes and our frailties and our sins. Indeed we do. We come as we are and let Jesus do the changing. That's his work. It's Jesus that makes the changes. We just come just as we are and Jesus makes the changing. Anyone else before we close this morning? Anyone else coming to Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for those who have come this morning, indicating they want to commit their lives to you, Lord. We've all made mistakes. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But praise God that there is forgiveness, there is acceptance by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross. We thank you for that blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit take possession of these who have come forward today. May they have your anointing. May they take time for a study in your word day by day and grow in grace and in your knowledge. And may that faith grow and mature. And may their love for you never end, Lord. Bless these who have come forward. And then there are those who wanted to come forward but for one reason or another haven't. But they desire to come in their hearts, Lord. Please accept these loved ones too and surround them with your arms of love. Thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity to come. 
Please accept us just as we are and make us whole and complete and new in Christ Jesus, I pray today. In his name, amen and amen. Thank you for coming. God bless you. You may return to your seats. If you'll take your hymnals and turn with me to hymn number 316, we'll sing only the first and last stanzas of Live Out Thy Life Within Me. Hymn number 316. Please stand as we sing together. dedicated to your worship, Lord. May your presence continue to go with us to guide and direct our lives until that day that you come to take us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.